For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Light travels, you know, 186,000 miles per second. The point is, is that once this thing starts, it's going to be very, very fast. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the last chapter of the Revelation, chapter 22, looking at a passage which gives clarity about whom we are called to worship. The study from verses 6 through 9 is important because there are religions in the world that don't clearly instruct that we are to only worship the triune God. Rather, they elevate mere men to the level of God, and that type of teaching is not only heresy, but it leads its followers on a path straight to hell. As we return to our message entitled, Are You Ready for Jesus' Return?, Dr. Brogy notes that Jesus' imminent and immediate return is a distinct possibility. When you read the book of Revelation, there are many Christians today who are really kind of just dismissing that Jesus could come back anytime soon because they do not interpret Revelation beginning in chapter 4 through 18 as futuristic. And if you were not here for the opening message, I went through uh, four or five different ways people have interpreted the book of Revelation and the history of the church. The early church fathers all saw it as futuristic. The chapter 4 onward was something that had never, ever taken place. But today, through some of our Reformed brothers... They say, with the exception of chapter 19 in the second coming, all of Revelation is history. And so when they approach Revelation, they either allegorize it. And so by an allegorization, you you, you kind of spiritualize the text. You say, well, this represents this. Well, unless God says this does represent this, then you can write your own Bible and make the Bible mean whatever you want. Or there are people like Martin Luther who took the historical approach to the book of Revelation, and he said that it was not past, the preterist view, all done before 70 AD, but it was being fulfilled through the church age. And he thought, Luther, that the Antichrist, the Pope, was literally the Antichrist and that he was living in the tribulation. Obviously, he was wrong. Look, as you read what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse of this time frame, and you read the detailed explanation that John gives, it's obvious that the events, the persons, the descriptions are so incredible that nothing in the history of the world could ever have fulfilled it. And so John wants to affirm here what the angel tells him, what I heard and saw is faithful and true. And Jesus will say it again. Uh, Look down in verse uh, 16 here. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. And so when we come to the end of the book, verses 18 and 19, notice what Jesus says. If anyone adds to them, the words of the prophecy of this book, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. Jesus is giving a warning. There is no book like Revelation. We are called to study it, to heed it, to obey it, but we're also warned that we're not to tamper with it. 
And we'll come to this, and we'll spend a whole message just on those two verses. And again, if you're not sure about all the different approaches that began largely under Roman Catholicism, and then some of the reformers who came out of Catholicism get the Search the Scriptures app and listen to the very first message in the Revelation. So this is a revelation. The word means an unveiling. God took something that was hidden and he's unveiled it for us. He's writing to us something that's not incomprehensible, but something that he wants us to grasp and to understand. So think about for a moment where we've been. Here's a prophetic chart that John has given us, but not John uniquely. Also, uh, the other prophets. Right now, we're in the church age. And so when you read the book of Revelation, he writes about the things that were past, and he describes the picture of Christ glorified in heaven, what God had shown him. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he writes about the things that are. And he writes of seven literal actual churches. And these seven churches are important because you can almost take any church, healthy or unhealthy, and they fit into one of these seven churches. And you can take any life. Because remember, a local church is what its composite members are. And sometimes you can have a church that, for the most part, might be a very healthy church, but you might have some individuals that are more like, say, the Laodiceans. But he gives us those seven churches so that not only the church, but we as individuals can do some analysis. When you come to chapter 4, there's a door that is open in heaven. And it's called the rapture. And so the church is not mentioned again until we will see the term ecclesia mentioned here, church, here in chapter 22, later in the chapter. Where's the church been? They've been in heaven. God has caught the church up. Now, this is not drawn to scale. We have to draw it so that things can fit in. But between the rapture, when the church is caught up, and Paul says, we shall not all sleep, we shall uh, not all die, so to speak, we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, Paul says to the church at Thessalonica that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ will come out first. Then we who are alive shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. Right after that, between the rapture and that line that says second coming, coming downward, that represents just seven years. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble by the prophet Jeremiah. We'll talk about its purpose in a moment. It's a very dark time in human history, the darkest time man has ever seen. But God will have a purpose in that. But then Jesus will come back. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, we'll enter into the eternal state. Now, let's think for a moment, why does God have a tribulation period? We've talked about, I gave you six reasons why he has a thousand-year reign. Well, there's six reasons, too, why he has a tribulation period. There may be more, but these are six that are plainly taught. Number one, to bring Israel to faith. For the most part, the Jews are in unbelief. And so what does God say he will do at the end of time? He'll gather the Jews from the nations of the world, and he'll bring them back into the land. And then once they are in the land... He is not only going to physically have them gathered, he's going to spiritually change them. The Jews are going to believe that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Savior of the world. And so God will use this to bring Israel to faith. Look, for the most part today, the church is Gentile, as I mentioned. And most Gentiles today have become lukewarm, cold, and indifferent, and they very, very rarely, if ever, share their faith. There will come a point when God will say enough. 
I care about people. I don't want people to perish. And the church, those who are on fire and those who are lukewarm will be captured up into the air. And God will work through a new entity, the Jew. And so in Revelation 7, after the rapture, 144,000 Jews from 12 different tribes are miraculously converted. And what do they do? They preach the gospel to the whole world. So one, it will bring Israel to faith. Two, it will show God's sovereignty over his creation. This is not our air, our water, our nature. This world has not been created by Mother Nature. It's done by Father God. And there's sheer nonsense that people say that we're all going to be smothered and crushed and five feet underwater is not what the Bible reveals about the end. I'm not saying it couldn't happen if we went long enough in that direction, but it's not going to happen. God said it, it, with as long as Genesis 9, there will be harvests and every single season until the end of the world. In the end events, God will judge the very thing that man worships, but he will show that he is a sovereign God. Third, one of the purposes for the tribulation is to expose the evil nature of Satan. His counterfeit master plan will be revealed. He has always wanted to be worshiped. And through his antichrist, he will seek men to worship him. And you will see Satan, as we've studied, in all of his lying, conniving, God-hating, Christian-despising, blood-lusting, pride-hungering self. He is a wicked, wicked fallen angel, and he hates you, and he despises you, and he wants nothing but your worst, and he is the one who's energizing this world system that we live in. Fourth, we'll see something about the nature of man. The tribulation will expose man's total depravity, that the heart of man is desperately wicked. How will we see that? How have we seen it? Well, we saw that in spite of the stars falling from their sockets, global earthquakes, water being turned into blood, famine, one thing after another, people who know, according to Revelation 5, that this is the wrath of the Lamb from his throne, they still raise their puny fist in the face of God, and they blaspheme, and they do not repent. We will see really just how bad we are. That's one of the functions. In addition, a function is to show God's desire to save. He's not only going to revive Israel and display his sovereignty, expose Satan's evil nature and man's depravity, he's going to show that he is a God who doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He is going to use the Jewish people like never before this seal and trumpet and bold judgments is not because God hates man, but because God loves man. It will be his final wake-up call. He'll be ringing people's bells across the planet. And six, the purpose will be to fulfill the Great Commission. The Great Commission will be fulfilled in this seven-year period. We've never really seen it fulfilled in the history of the church. People say, well, we got to get out there and win the loss so Jesus can come back. Nothing has to happen for Jesus to come and catch up his church. That doesn't mean we shouldn't get out there. We should live like we're the only church on the planet, like we're the only church who cares about reaching lost people. That's why you support over 300 missionaries every month through your tithes and offerings. But what we've been trying to do and God's people have attempted to do in 2,000 years will be done. 
during this time frame. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. What end? His second coming. That's the context. And he's speaking of this seven-year period where the gospel through these 144,000 Jewish evangelists through two witnesses, one we know to be for sure Elijah, because the Bible says he's coming back. I suspect the other is Moses. And then an angel, God's never used an angel before to preach the gospel, but he will during this time. And the result is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be one to Jesus. Now, John, by no means, is the first to prophesy about these events, but he's the last one to write about them, and he's unique in that he gives the most detail. The prophet Amos spoke of this seven-year period where the wrath of God will come on the earth. Isaiah spoke of the same time frame along with cosmic disturbances in the heavens above. The prophet Zechariah spoke of the salvation of Gentiles and the appearance of the Messiah on the Mount of Olives. Daniel gave us the exact length of time that it would be seven years. Now remember, the rapture and the second coming, it's very important. And I know some of you are brand new Christians. And, you know, I had an 11-year-old in the office recently. I said, look, don't, don't worry about the things you don't get. You're not going to understand everything Pastor Carl teaches. You're just 11, but that doesn't mean you can't learn a lot. I know 11-year-olds who know more than 70-year-olds. I'm not joking. Because they have a heart and a hunger for the things of God. But I said, you be open and let God speak to your heart. But don't worry about the things you don't understand. And I, told, I tell them, I have to teach the newest of Christians. And I have to teach the oldest of Christians. Immature and very mature and everything in between. So I have to provide every week when I feed the sheep people for every different level. But remember, the rapture and the second coming are two distinct events. In the rapture, Christ comes in the air. We will meet the Lord in the air. But at the second coming, Zechariah chapter 14, he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. He comes to the earth. In the rapture, he comes for his people. At the second coming, when Jesus comes back with scores, millions of angels, they're going to come for the lost. His people in the rapture will be removed from earth into heaven, but the lost at the second coming, they will be removed from the planet, every last one of them, and temporarily put in Hades, awaiting the final great white throne judgment. In the rapture, Jesus comes before the hour of trial. We're in the second coming. He comes at the end of the tribulation, after the hour of trial. There are no signs, never have been for the rapture. It's imminent. Many signs for his second coming. In the rapture, we're resurrected. In the twinkling of an eye, our bodies are changed. We get mortal bodies taking on immortality. This perishable must put on the imperishable. But at the second coming, Old Testament saints are raised. They won't be raised with the church. They're raised, Daniel 12 teaches, at the end of the tribulation. That's when Abraham and Moses and all these guys are going to come out of the grave in their resurrected bodies. Um, so believers at the rapture will receive glorified bodies. Believers who are alive at the second coming, they will go into the millennium in their natural bodies. Now, when they go into the millennium, remember the millennium is a thousand years long. Once a person is saved, the Bible teaches they are saved forever. 
we and our resurrected bodies will be like the angels and that we will not procreate and we won't be married. Some ladies say, oh, thank God, my marriage will be over. <laughs> That's not to say that you won't have a special relationship with your wife. Of course, one guy said to me, I'm not sure which one. I've been married five times. I said, oh, you know, you can see why God had to sort this thing out a little bit. But those who enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies will have children over the course of a thousand years. And Satan will have been locked up for the full thousand years. And at the end of the thousand years, he hasn't tempted anyone. Jesus is ruling perfect conditions, yet not all will respond. And he will muster up a rebellion that will be put down before they can fire their first bullet. We've studied it in detail. And then he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Then the lost of all time are brought before the great white throne judgment. That brought us to chapter 21, where we studied heaven and what it was like. Chapter 22, 1 through 5, the inside tour. And when you, if you didn't believe the Bible was the word of God, you might say, man, this is fiction. This is too good to be true. God says these words are faithful and true, John, this is no dream. You're not in some spiritual fog. Everything that you have seen and heard and you have recorded is really real. God is faithful and true. And because God, the Lord, the God of the spirits of his prophets sent his angel to tell you this, you can bank on it. Now, that's the first response. The fact that Jesus is coming, we are to wait. We are to anticipate. But more than anticipation, God wants us to make some application. So when you think about Christ coming back, we are also to work. We are to work. Look now at verse 7. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, quickly or soon or suddenly. Uh, again, speaks of the time of time and that when it begins, it will happen very fast. And we, we've witnessed that with the 21 judgments. And we witness that with other events that are in the future. For instance, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. Now, biologically, the twinkling of an eye refers to the amount of time it takes for light to hit the eyeball and bounce off. I don't know how they come up with it, but scientists say it's one millionth of a second. That's how fast it's going to happen. I don't know how many true Christians there are in the world, but let's say for the sake of argument, there's 500 million born-again Christians alive. I mean, think if the rapture happened today, and Christians all across this campus were suddenly missing. Some of us who don't know Christ would be in havoc. But think about the planet. 500 million people say gone, maybe more, all across the world. The world will be in utter turmoil, and it's going to happen so fast in the twinkling of an eye. That's the rapture. Think about the speed of the second coming. Jesus said it this way in the Olivet Discourse. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Light travels, you know, 186,000 miles per second. 
The point is, is that once this thing starts, it's going to be very, very fast. And not just unbelievers need to heed this warning so that they are saved, but he's addressing here primarily Christians who need to be obeying this truth. Look at verse 7 again. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, if you've been with us in our study of the Revelation, we've learned there are seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Here's a chart. The the book opened that those who read and heed and obey the book of Revelation, those who read it, who hear it and obey it, they're blessed. There's a blessing that is given for the believer who wants to study the book of Revelation. Later on, he'll give a beatitude for those who die in the Lord. He's speaking about that seven-year period where how are most of God's people who are converted during the tribulation. And remember, it's people who've never heard the gospel before. The typical way they are dead is by execution, i.e., their heads are cut off. Mm. So in that sense, it's a blessing. If you die in the Lord at that point, especially what's coming after Revelation 14. Revelation 16, blessed are those who are watching. Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. When the church is raptured, we'll be in heaven, and our lives will be evaluated. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. It's not to see if you get into heaven. It's a judgment for Christians to see how you will spend eternity based on your faithfulness now. And then we will sit down with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It will be magnificent. Then Revelation 20, verse 6, those who are a part of the first resurrection. We studied the whole first resurrection program. And then here we are, Revelation 22, 7, those who heed. Look at the verse again. Blessed is he who heeds the word of the prophecy of this book. You're blessed if you heed. So if you're blessed by heeding, what does it mean to heed? Well, it's a Greek word that means to observe, to keep. In fact, uh, the same word was used in Revelation 14, 12 of believers. Here is the perseverance of the saints. And I think most of you know that if you are saved, you're a saint. You're looking at St. Brogy this morning. Now, no church gave me that designation. Sainthood, though, is spoken of every believer. How righteous do you have to be to go to heaven? As righteous as God. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. It's gifted by grace through faith. You are accredited and called a saint of God. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. He's saying, listen, when God declares you a saint, a holy one, you'll want to keep his commandments. Now, some almost add the words without failure, but he does not do that. We're going to see one of his failures in a moment. We all stumble in many ways. But the Bible is very clear. We've seen it repeatedly that if we know Jesus, there's a new direction in our life. There's a new way of life. Why? Because when God credits you with righteousness, for the first time ever, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. You know what he does? He makes you holy. And he is your helper. He wants to help you. And so if our life is not changed It means the Spirit is not residing in us. It means we've never believed on Christ where we're deemed saints. Again, the difference between a true believer and a false believer is that a true believer 
has a new direction. We're not talking about perfection, but direction. There's a new direction in life. And understand, obedience is not a condition of salvation. It is the evidence of salvation. But not only is it the evidence of salvation, as our verse this morning in verse 6 underscores, it is also the pathway to blessing. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, if you are obeying what God is revealing in this book, he's going to bless you. He didn't give you this book so you can create some big chart to make you smarter. He gave us this book that we might surrender more fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. John said it this way in his first letter. 1 John 3, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, when we live with the expectation that Jesus could come this, I mean, if you knew he was coming this afternoon at three, what would you do? I got this brother who's lost. I want to go talk to him. And I got this person that I owe money to, and I want to go fix that. And you might want to get some things right. Well, we are to live like he can come at any moment. And when we live with that expectation, we will live a pure life as Jesus is pure. And so that's what the early church did, and it was a major motivation for them that I think we've lost. And so when Paul concludes his whole discourse on being changed in the twinkling of an eye, he says, therefore, here's the application, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not in vain for you to heed the words of the prophecy of this book. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. A few days ago, had a brother right here, been a member since I came, went home to be with Jesus. His body was there, but the person inside the body, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, we have as our ambition, whether at home, alive in this body, or absent, to be pleasing to him, to him, to Jesus. Peter said it this way when he spoke of the fact that Jesus' return is imminent. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort, what kind, what manner of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He has already said in the book that we are aliens and strangers. That our real citizenship, Paul said, is not as Americans, but it's in heaven. Now, while I don't believe that we should be weird for weird's sake, because I know some believers associate weirdness with holiness, and when they're weird, unnecessarily, they repel people and they miss opportunity to win people to Jesus. To listen again to today's study from Revelation 22 entitled, Are You Ready for Jesus' Return? Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program REV67. We are praying that once again we will be able to take a number of listeners on a trip to the Holy Land. 
In this 11-day journey to Israel, Dr. Brogy, along with local guides, will bring the Bible to life as they travel to spots like the Temple Mount and the Western Wall, the Sea of Galilee, the Mount of Olives, and the City of David. To find out more about the two trips scheduled for September and October, visit stsisraeltour.com. I promise you this will be the trip of a lifetime. Tomorrow, the conclusion of Are You Ready for Jesus' Return? Join us then as we search the Scriptures.